0: This is The Tea on International Arbitration with Nicole Silver and Gaela Garing Flores. I am an attorney and an investment manager with third-party funder Validity Finance, and Gaela is an international arbitration partner at Allen & Overy. Both of us serve as committee chairs of the DC Bar International Law community. Today, we are going to discuss AI and its intersection with international arbitration, which, by all accounts, is a hot and incredibly important topic. This is because, as the world is becoming increasingly digitized, the use of artificial intelligence in various fields has become increasingly common, and international arbitration is no exception. On today's episode, we'll be discussing how AI and related technologies are changing the landscape of international arbitration and what it means for the parties involved. From predictive analytics to contract review software, we'll explore the ways in which AI is transforming this centuries old legal practice And what the implications are for the future of dispute resolution. So sit back, relax, and join us as we examine the ever evolving role of AI in international arbitration with our guest, Alejandra Para Orlandoni. All right, so by now you may have guessed that I had ChatGPT write that brief introduction to our podcast, which, while a respectable prediction, is not exactly what we'll be discussing today. But still, it's not a bad attempt, and it took the program all of two seconds to write it, so I'll take it. Before we get to our questions and what we will actually be discussing on today's episode, Gaela, would you like to introduce Alejandra? Of course. It is my great pleasure
1: to introduce our guest, Alejandra Parra-Orlandoni. Alejandra's primary professional focus is to drive value through responsible innovation. She's currently the VP of Ethical Innovation and Privacy for the Global Portfolio Division at Takeda, a Japanese multinational pharmaceutical company, which is one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Alejandra leads a team who co-designs processes and solutions that enable Takeda to deliver trustworthy data-driven innovation. Before joining Takeda, Alejandra worked on Meta's data policy team where she led an internal policy innovation think tank focused on privacy-enhancing technologies, digital identity, and the metaverse. Prior to that, she was at McKinsey, where she partnered with business and tech leaders to build AI products responsibly, shape new client services around responsible AI, and launch the firm's inaugural open-source project. She also has previous experience as an engineer, U.S. Naval officer and attorney. Alejandra holds engineering degrees from MIT and the U.S. Naval Academy and a JD from Harvard Law. She writes and speaks publicly about leadership best practices and serves as an advisor to startups. She also volunteers mentoring women and transitioning military veterans. And in her spare time, Alejandra loves to paint, invent silly songs, debate the meaning of life and play with dogs. So I trust that everyone can understand why we are so interested in speaking with Alejandra, in particular on the topic of AI. I would venture to say that the world of AI and the policy implications of that world are waters that Alejandra is quite used to navigating. It is particularly special for me to have Alejandra on this program, because when she was starting off her legal career, I had the distinct fortune to work with Alejandra on international arbitration matters before she shifted her focus to tech law and policy. Because of Alejandra's unique professional experience, I would be hard pressed to find someone I trust more with the topic, the specific topic, of AI in international arbitration. So welcome, Alejandra.
2: Well, thank you both so much for this opportunity to join you for Tea. It's always a privilege to speak with you, Gaela, and I'm equally excited to chat more with you, Nicole, on this very, very fun topic. Thank you again for having me.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here. Alejandra, could you please give us a bit of a primer on AI and international arbitration? In other words, like what kind of AI beasts might be influencing or shaping the world of international arbitration? If anything, I wanna make sure we're all using the same language. For instance, what is the difference between terms one hears bandied about these days, like generative AI or open AI, Harvey or chat GPT? Can you maybe enlighten us? Yes, I think this is a
2: great place to start. One quick caveat, I am not an expert in the AI technology itself. So everything you hear from me on that front is based on my best understanding of the technology. And I may also speak about certain companies and products, and just wanna clarify that I'm not officially endorsing any of them. I love this idea of speaking the same language. AI, artificial intelligence, it's a system that aims to simulate aspects of human intelligence, like processing, synthesizing, or inferring data. And we as humans are really good at doing some of that stuff, but AI can do it at scale, faster in many cases, sometimes with more accuracy, but we'll talk a little bit more why that's not always the case. And so it's a really useful tool that can just bring a lot of benefits to the way we work and the things that we do. And you know this topic of AI is huge. It is huge, 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 and it spans a lot of different subtopics. And so I'm wondering if today we wanna to focus maybe on the hot AI topic du jour, which is the subcategory of AI called generative AI, I'm sure you already alluded to it, Nicole. Uh, Many of us have heard of ChatGPT by now. It's perhaps the most popular generative AI app these days. But before we get into what ChatGPT is, I think we should maybe spend a moment on what generative AI is first. And I think that it's helpful to think of generative AI as an AI system that's designed to create content that's similar to the content that we create as humans. So generative AI can do this content creation for text, but it can also do it for images, for video, for audio. And it does it by using this certain type of machine learning called neural networks. And they learn patterns from tons and tons and tons of existing data. This is called training the machine learning model. And then using that learning to generate this new content. So it's a lot of of jargon, but essentially what we're saying is that These AI models essentially learn the patterns of humans' natural language so that they can sound just like us when they create new content. And this is why these machine learning models that are the engine behind generative AI systems are often referred to as large language models. So there's a lot of jargon that was thrown in for you, so now you can understand how to use those words in context. And I actually asked ChatGPT, to explain generative AI using an analogy, and ChatGPT is the text-based generative AI app that a company called OpenAI created. So I asked ChatGPT to generate this definition of generative AI using an analogy, and this is what it came up with, and I'm paraphrasing for brevity. Generative AI can be compared to a chef in a kitchen. Just as a chef uses their knowledge and experience to create new dishes, generative AI uses machine learning models to analyze existing data and generate new content that is similar in style and content to the original data. For example, a generative AI system could be trained on a data set of images of animals and then generate new images of animals that are similar in style and content to the originals. The AI system may adjust the shape, color, and texture of the animals based on the patterns it learned from the original dataset. So that's what ChatGPT told us that generative AI is using this chef analogy. And one thing to note is that a lot of these initial generative AI systems we've seen so far do this content generation for one type of modality at a time. So they'll do text only, they'll do images only. and one of the things that we're starting to see some developers exploring is something called multimodal generative AI, which for example, could respond to a voice query using written text or images or translate a verbal request to a video. And the goal with this is to, again, to more closely capture how humans actually create content and communicate. It's very exciting. OpenAI, this company that created ChatGPT, also created this generative AI called Dolly2, and that can generate both images and text based on text-based prompts. So you input text, it outputs either images or text or both at the same time. So there are other examples, but this world of multimodal generative AI is still in much earlier stages than some of the tools that focus on a single modality. So I'll pause there. I think there are a couple of other things we may want to touch on, like foundational versus fine-tuned models, but I'll pause there and see if there are any follow-ups to that so far.
0: Yeah, I actually have a question and I'm yeah. sure you do too, Gaila. But you know, if it's mimicking sort of a human language or it's taking data, can you program it so that it mimics like a particular person? Like, could you say, train it to write Pleadings in the style of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or my boss, or you know, just someone who you want to sound like.
1: All of the law firm associates' ears just perked up, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people know one of, one of the jobs of an associate at a law firm is certainly to try to emulate the writing style or even speaking style of the partner or partners with whom they work. So yeah, very, very interested in this answer.
2: So the answer is actually yes, given the training data. So they would have, the model would have to ingest a ton of examples of, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's writing or Kyla's writing. And then yeah, the the model could totally learn that style. What's interesting is that there are different ways to go about that. And that kind of walks into that topic I just mentioned, foundational versus fine-tuned generative AI systems. So a foundational system is one that's been trained on a huge amount of diverse data. And so that gives the system the opportunity to learn general patterns and features of the data. So imagine a system that's trained on all the Wikipedia entries of forever and ever and ever and millions of additional written pieces like news articles and blog posts and whatever other examples you can can imagine of of writing. So the model underlying ChatGPT is like this. It's been trained on tons of textual content and has learned from that the ability to generate natural language text. So these foundational systems are interesting because they can then be fine-tuned to complete specific tasks or to sound a certain way And so again, ChatGPT is an example. It's built on this foundational system and then specially trained to respond to written prompts entered by people. Others have taken that ChatGPT model and then had it fine tuned to focus more on a particular domain or a typical speaking style. And the benefit is that these systems are very versatile and they can be fine tuned to these specific domains or styles more easily. One way I find it helpful to think about is a person who's trained as a well-rounded athlete, Um, you know, they're high in endurance and strength and mobility and power. It's probably going to be easier to train them to be a successful athlete in a particular sport than if you were to start with someone who didn't have any foundational athletic skills at all. And so our foundational system is like our all-around athlete. Now, the downside is that these foundational systems are huge. And they're very, very expensive to build and train. And so a fine-tuned system, on the other hand, is one that's trained on a narrow domain or a specific task from the get-go. So you could design a system that is you know, specifically focused on emulating the Supreme Court justices that are sitting on the court at that time. And these systems tend to be really, really good at the narrow thing that they're designed to do. The models are smaller and cheaper and faster to build. but they lack versatility. So if we stick with our athlete example, we have a power lifter maybe who's really good at lifting heavy weights, and they're likely better at power lifting than any all round athlete. But in terms of versatility, it would be very difficult for that power lifter to suddenly shift focus and excel in a sport like swimming or running long distance. And so I think one note on generative AI that is maybe worth highlighting is, I think we all kind of intuitively know this, but I think we have to remember that the development of this technology is, it's moving fast and it's kind of evolving even as we speak. And so, you know, everything we're talking about right now may be outdated in a month. Some of it I'm sure will not, but, you know, in a few months, things will shift. There will be new technologies, new advancements, multimodal generative AI that works really well and is easily accessible. And I think it's just important to remember that a lot of these advancements are moving much faster then sometimes our own understanding of exactly how the technology works or how we can best use it or the impact it might have on people and society. And so I think these dynamics, and particularly in you know, the domain of legal practice and international dispute resolution, I think it's so important to really embrace a mindset of learning and adaptability and balancing that with thinking carefully about the norms and the guardrails that we will all experiment with as we start to use this
1: technology. Thanks, Alejandra. I guess I wanted to ask, so the chat GPT that, that became a splash not too long ago, that was chat GPT or GPT three or four? Like, where, where are we
2: now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, if I remember correctly, The publicly free, like the the one that's freely available is ChatGPT 3.5, if I remember correctly. Then ChatGPT 4 is where we are now. And it's, you know, a quantum leap better than even 3.5, based on my understanding of it.
0: Do you know why?
2: Yeah, well, this is a really interesting question. So presumably, and I, I don't, I don't know all the details about this, but presumably it's because it's a larger model. So I, I do believe that that's true. But I think there are other elements of the model that have improved since the three point five version that OpenAI has not either not explained or they themselves don't quite understand what made it that much better. And I mean. You know, just to take one step back, I mentioned this term neural networks earlier, and maybe it's just a little helpful to understand what a neural network is, because it'll give you an idea of just the complexity of these technologies. So again, these generative AI models are, they're built using these machine learning models called neural networks. And neural networks are a method of AI that teaches computers to process data in a way that's inspired by the human brain. And so what they do is they create these thing called neurons, and you can think of them as nodes that are interconnected and arranged in layers. And these neurons learn all this stuff. And, you know, suddenly we have this model with these parameters that are the model of our language, you know, of of our natural language. The chat GPT models the underlying models have these parameters on the order of trillions of parameters so trillions it's big it's complicated so understanding exactly how these interconnected nodes that are operating in this context of you know trillions of parameters and being able to trace back exactly what is going on and what makes you know chat gpt 4 that much better than chat gpt 3.5 I imagine it's it's just technically not very easy to do. I don't think there's any intentional mystery about it. I think it's just really on a technical level it's hard to understand. And you know, I will I I'll just say this again. I hope everyone forgives me if I've gotten some of these details a little bit wrong because I'm certainly not an AI and neural network expert. But it is really fascinating. Like you know we we don't know exactly why it's that much better but it is that much better and the gpt4 model version of ChatGPT gpt is the one that you have to pay a subscription
0: to use i paid for that and that was the <laughs> intro it was the 4.0 version that wrote that <laughs> intro
1: <laughs> so on that note and understanding that you know at least from from what i've read out there and from a variety of sources It is difficult for even the software engineers who are developing these platforms, these generative AI platforms, to explain exactly what these systems are doing. And in that regard, I'm sure everyone has heard a bit of the alarm bells ringing regarding the potential dangers of AI. And and that's certainly one of the sources that nobody's quite able to explain what it's doing. And that's, you know, kind of concern in and of itself. But I will save the Terminator and Matrix references for now, because I'd like to start us talking first about the potential upsides to AI and generative AI. So could you tell us a bit about the advantages that you can see in AI, particularly in the context of international dispute resolution?
2: Yes, and I actually appreciate the opportunity to start by focusing on the positive. I think generative AI is very exciting, and whether or not anyone likes it, it's here. So from a practical perspective, I do think it's important for all of us to consider the opportunities, the advantages, and explore how we might use the technology. So one area that people love to talk about with respect to generative AI is as a productivity boost. Now, when I think about any legal practice, and certainly international dispute resolution included, one of the first things that come to mind for me is that legal practice involves a lot of really hard work. I have never met a member of a legal team who doesn't work really hard. And on the flip side, I've never met one who doesn't hold themselves to an incredibly high standard. And not to mention, of course, clients do the same. (laughs) They rightfully expect a lot of the people that they're trusting to take on their legal matters. So you know, a tool that can help with boosting productivity, I think it's great. And, you know, this isn't a comprehensive list, but just some thoughts that come to mind in terms of how generative AI can support teams in international dispute resolution. It's a potential assist with legal research. And this is especially true for investment arbitration because the content is mostly publicly available, which means you can access a lot of the relevant data for training the AI. It's also a limited universe. So, AI can get really good at assisting with research in this space in particular and could conceivably learn, you know, all the things there are to know, you know, with the caveats that go along with that. And and you can also imagine the boost it would provide in running, for example, comparative analysis of all the relevant treaties that you need to consider for something. So that's, that's one idea. You could also use generative AI for analyzing information like evidence, witness statements, even legal arguments. For example, I don't know if you guys have ever played around with this, but you can ask a generative AI chatbot to summarize pages of information and ask it to extract trends. You know, it's much shorter to say, hey, give me the top three points from this huge stack of papers. It's just more efficient and faster. It could also be used to assist with constructing arguments. So, you know, generative AI can definitely help with outlining an argument or writing a first draft selecting arbitrators, you know, not only could generative AI help you find arbitrators who meet certain criteria you may be seeking, but also help define the criteria itself. And so again, that's not a comprehensive list. And we didn't even touch on legal operations or case management, but I think there's a lot in terms of productivity boosting. You know, there's another category that I think maybe we want to discuss around creativity boosting but I'll pause there and see if that prompts any questions or follow-ups.
0: I have a question and it's probably because you know I'm in the business of analyzing cases. Do you think that this technology could be used as a predictive tool or something that could predict outcomes in any given case?
2: I think it's a great question. I actually don't know if generative AI itself is the tool for that. Certainly AI tools more broadly There there are machine learning models and data science analytics models that focus specifically on predictive outcomes. I don't actually know from a technical perspective if that's a strength of generative AI, and definitely will be looking that up after this call um, just for my own curiosity. But one thing that I do think generative AI could do is provide that kind of frictionless natural language interface. To allow you to ask the questions of potentially a model that is set up to do this sort of predictive analytics. So I don't know if that's a helpful answer.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I guess I wonder, you know, I, I've had a bit of experience with the GPT-based software that that my law firm uses, which is called Harvey. And A and O came out with a lot of announcements about its use of Harvey pretty recently, and one thing that I haven't really done with Harvey, but I'm pretty sure you can do with it, is kind of have a an iterative conversation. Like say, you know, could you please provide me with a draft of this argument or or this position and then have it give me something and then come back and say, that's great. Could you try again, but leave out X? And I do understand that that can be very productive for a lot of people to be able to do that, to just engage in these almost like conversations with someone who comes back with pretty, who can come back with very knowledgeable answers to your questions. You know, always with the caveat that this is, it's always a first draft and it can be an interesting exercise.
0: I mean, I guess you could also ask it like, you know, if these are your affirmative arguments, you know, what the defense Objections would be, or what the defense would be in that case. Yes,
1: yeah, and I have done, I have done that, <laughs> I have done that, and it is very helpful.
2: Yeah, and and I definitely think that that I mean, you could call that a productivity boost. For me, I think of those as like the creativity boost. So, I mean, it sounds like maybe both of you are like this too. But I, I actually really enjoy brainstorming with other people and bouncing ideas off of others um, and using like one idea to fuel the next. But you know, personally, I don't work with people who have endless availability to brainstorm <laughs> at my beck and call. And also, I happen to sit with a global team where everyone's in a different time zone. Yeah. And I know that in a lot of international dispute resolution teams, that's also the case. And so with a really smart chatbot, I think there's a lot of brainstorming that, that we can all do, share some thoughts, ask the questions, like iterate, ask for opposing views. And, you know, it's not the same as being in a room with other humans, but I think it's a really nice source of interaction and feedback. And yeah, I, I think the other thing that I found that's really fun to do with these generative AI chatbots is to use different formats of explaining something to either understand it better myself or to then explain it to others. So, you know, earlier I talked about how I asked the ChatGPT GPT to come up with the chef analogy to explain what generative AI is. But you could do this a lot with, you know, constructing different arguments or thinking about how you're going to approach a really complex topic. You know, how would I explain to a particular audience this really complex topic? Or help me explain X, Y, Z as if I were a person in this particular profession or with this particular expertise. And I think this is particularly useful for international dispute resolution, because we're talking about folks who sit in a lot of different parts of the world there are sometimes language barriers or cultural differences or norms differences that you know can help you figure out the right way to explain something so that it'll stick with the people that you're you're interacting with
0: well for what it's worth i i preferred your analogy to the the athlete than to the chef but So let's get to the glass half empty portion of this talk, that is computers turning humans into batteries or paperclips, something like that. Do you think that there are inherent dangers to AI? And if so, what might those be in the context of international dispute resolution?
2: Yeah, I am still glad that we started with the upside because I think there are a lot of things to be a little worried about when it comes to generative AI. But it's very easy to get bogged down, I think, by those potential downsides. So there's a lot to consider. And I see it as all of our collective responsibility to be thoughtful as we start to increasingly use generative AI. So for me, I I find it really helpful to split these kind of dangers into two broad categories. The first, I would call the more well-understood issues. And what more well-understood is very much a, a relative term that I'm using here. And some of those issues have easy solutions and some of them do not. The second category, I call it the existential stuff. And I'm pretty confident in saying that we're unlikely to understand really the crux of some of these existential issues very well anytime soon, because, you know, they play on philosophical and moral issues that smart people have been contemplating literally for millennia. So I don't think we're going to solve them, you know, in the next six months or so. But if we start in that kind of more well-understood bucket, there are a few dangers that I think should be on our minds, and certainly as an international dispute resolution professional. And just a very quick caveat, what we're going to talk about is not a comprehensive list. But the first of these issues is one that we haven't really talked about very much yet, which is the danger of using generative AI when it's not the right tool for the job. And if it's not the right tool, I think it's important to understand what the consequences might be. So, you know, put slightly differently, I think it's really important to consider what a particular generative AI tool is good at and what it is not good at, and making sure that you don't apply it in a place where it doesn't make sense. And so one of the most helpful frameworks I've heard so far for thinking about this, because it's actually quite difficult, was created by this person named uh, Barak Turovsky. He's currently at a company called Scale Venture Partners. And he discussed this model on a podcast called AI Studios, hosted by Natalie Barina. She was a responsible AI product leader at Meta. So Barak created a two-by-two matrix. And if you could just imagine this vertical axis for this matrix is AI fluency. So in other words, how well an AI can converse in polished natural language, just like a human. So generative AI is very high in AI fluency. And then imagine a horizontal axis, which is accuracy. Most generative AI tools are not very high in accuracy. They're quite low in accuracy. So they're very high in fluency and they're very low in accuracy. And so in some cases, high fluency and low accuracy are perfectly fine combination. Bark gives the example of writing a children's book where it's totally fine to get certain details about your subject a little wrong. And in fact, for a lot of creators, this feature, this kind of low accuracy feature is something that they love. The AI comes up with these things called hallucinations, these kind of totally (laughs) fantastic, completely wrong writings that have no basis in reality, but they sound really confident that they're correct. And some creators really love it. But if you are a lawyer trying to give... Legal advice to a client, you can see how this high fluency, low accuracy combination, and then maybe you add these hallucinations to the mix might be a pretty big problem. So I think it's really important to consider what the task is that you're trying to solve for, and just try to understand whether the fluency accuracy combination makes generative AI the right tool for the job. Now, of course, it's not like we don't stop there, like there are workarounds. So one potential workaround for this accuracy problem is to stick to fine-tuned models that we talked about earlier before. And another workaround is that you know today generative AI doesn't usually work as a standalone tool. Usually there is a human in the loop somewhere. So we could almost think about a division of labor between generative AI system and humans. So you know one model could be that we have generative AI create first and second drafts. And then we have humans kind of checking for accuracy and and other issues like that. Now, is that practically feasible? I mean, it depends on the degree of documents that you're reviewing and the other resources and priorities you may have, but that's another workaround. And you can also build in specific safety guardrails into generative AI systems. So usually these guardrails are manually kind of programmed in by developers. So they're not really part of the model. They're just like tacked on. So, you know, one example is a rule that keeps a generative AI system from providing instructions on how to build a bomb. Of course, you've all, I'm sure, read the news about someone who was able to circumvent that rule. And so you have to really be careful about these guardrails, but it is a potential workaround. So I'll pause there. That right tool for the job, I think it's kind of one of the biggest, more well-understood issues. I don't know if that prompts any thoughts or questions.
1: Yeah, I just with respect to hallucinations by generative AI programs, I know that one of the issues in the context of legal disputes or international legal disputes is the hallucination of legal citations, where a generative program will be asked to draft an argument and provide the way that we Draft our arguments is that we tend to provide cases in citations that are, you know, the foundation of the argument that we're making. And if I think that if you're dealing with a sophisticated legal practice, even the most confident sounding AI fluent system will not get by an experienced practitioner because you'll you'll see the site and and it might look like it could be a site but but you're like I've never heard of that case before and then, and then you look it up and it, you know it doesn't exist. So I think as long as again like you said if there is a human in the system then those sorts of errors could certainly be caught. Now, one of the things that I'm very interested in is is having An AI system that actually has a citation checking system, if not guardrail, built into it. And I would certainly think that that's coming in the near future. And well, (laughs) we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. But yeah, one of the biggest dangers that I see is just generative AI being an echo chamber of either fantastical information, like things that just aren't real, or purposeful in misinformation <laughs> you know whether it's about election results let's say for an example you know that that you have a that you have some sort of generative ai that's just kind of amplifying misinformation that is already out there if it if it is one of these foundational systems that has basically all of the internet at its disposal it it does seem like a pretty daunting task to kind of put in all of the guardrails that would be necessary to check the hallucinations. And, and again, you know, I think if you do have sophisticated legal practitioners reviewing whatever the AI is doing, you know, that that is your guardrail. But do you know, I, I don't know of anywhere in the legal profession where an AI system would or even could be just kind of plugged in automatically to some decision-making function, because that's where I see, you know, people really being concerned about true dangers of AI, where there is no human in the mix to look at what the AI system is deciding. That certainly seems to be the biggest concern. And to the extent that lawyers are always, at least lawyers in the United States, are always mandated to review the work of someone or maybe in this case, something that does not have a law degree. <laughs> I would hope <laughs> that this would never become a problem in the legal field. But I don't, I don't know what you think about that, Alejandra.
2: No, I, I actually think that you're spot on. And, you know, maybe I'll skip to that kind of existential category. I mean, there's some other other really practical considerations on the dangers of generative AI. But I'm going to skip over to that existential category real quick to respond to your question, because I think that all the questions you're raising, I don't know the answers to them. But what I do know is that I think they start to lead us to this core issue of, in this world of generative AI, what value do humans bring to the table? You know, if we have a system where Generative AI is doing all the first draft work, maybe even final draft work, and it's a human's job to check the answers. Is that the division of labor we want? You know, is this, a, do we want to create this world where we're checking AI's work? You know, for some people, maybe that sounds fine. Maybe that sounds absolutely lovely, you know, and, and like a, a wonderful way to earn a living. For other people, you know, I will put myself in this latter category. It sounds like a nightmare. I don't want to go check AI's work. I want AI to check my work. <laughs> so um, I think that, you know, we have to be considering what does all of this mean for the skills we improve as humans and the, the skills maybe that we leave behind. And, you know, I, <laughs> I'll, put it, I'll put it this way. Um, I think that there's a world where we have this, you know, division of labor that I just described, but there's another world that to me looks more like the interaction between Tony Stark and Jarvis I don't know if any of you are Iron Man fans, but Tony Stark, the lead character has this AI named Jarvis and they're just bantering back and forth all the time. They're co-designing, co-developing, brainstorming. And there is certainly a division of labor, but it does not fall along the lines of creative work goes to the AI. And then, you know, Tony Stark is sitting there checking Jarvis's answers. It's in a different place. And so I think, you know, I I don't know the answer to your questions, Gaila. I think they're really the important points. And I think that as we start to decide as organizations how we are going to leverage these tools, I think productivity, of course, is one of the questions, but also like what kind of future are we creating? Are we really getting the best out of not just the machines, but also the humans? Are we going to be able to get the best out of both? And can we create a working dynamic that allows for that?
1: Thanks, Alejandra. And I don't, I certainly don't want to cut you off on the non-existential factors. Okay. Still very interesting, but yeah. So I guess kind of going even further down into the existential rabbit hole and with many apologies to those recovering from degrees in philosophy, this next question is a bit going into, not even a bit, it's about epistemology. You know, how do we know what we know? Type of thing. And one of my personal concerns regarding AI involves my conviction that a disputes practice is inherently creative. You know, I do believe that we have very creative jobs. I know that maybe a lot of lawyers think of themselves as maybe more technicians or wouldn't consider themselves as, quote, creatives, unquote. But I really do think that a lot of what we do is in the world of creativity, especially in the disputes resolution world where, you know, it is incumbent upon you to convince some decision maker of the validity of your argument and the compelling nature of your argument. So I do think that there's this huge creative element. You know, we tap into our stores of creativity to make the best arguments for our clients, arguments that are founded in jurisprudence. Yes. You know, that's kind of a technical thing, but that take a creative turn that no one else has taken before. I think that's what we like to do with our jobs. At least that's something that that gives me a lot of utils, the idea that I'm I'm out there creating, I'm being creative, but so- In my mind, if lawyers are increasingly dependent on generative AI tools to conduct research or create first drafts or even final drafts, my big question is, will AI prove to be an expansive or expanding experience in terms of creativity or a limiting one? Will AI dependence drain us of our creativity or make us dumber, for lack of a better word? Or is AI knowledge creating or knowledge limiting? I don't know how many other ways I can express this, but that's my general, you know, and if right now, generative AI is looking at a universe. it's a, It can be a very big universe of data, but it's this universe. It's kind of this somewhat fixed universe. And if everybody just starts using AI, are we just kind of traveling around and around and around that universe and no one is making it bigger? Anyway, so with that very long and rambling question, go for it. <laughs> so
2: I, I think this is so fascinating. And I do think it's an extension of the discussion we just had around really understanding what are we trying to use generative AI tools for? and as we make those decisions are we creating a world in which we're bringing the best of humans and the machines not just one or the other i do think that although generative ai you know is trained on a certain body of data for some models that body of data is constantly growing like you know it, it always has new inputs and so it kind of updates itself it learns new things and we also do know that machines can be creative they can think outside the bounds of the world that they've been put in. So 2016 was when Google's DeepMind AlphaGo AI beat the Go human champion for the first time ever. And it did it by playing the game in a creative and somewhat unorthodox way, but one that was within the rules. So that was creative. In 2017, Facebook, now Meta, uh, developed AI chatbots that started to converse amongst themselves and created a new language, which is very creative. And Facebook eventually shut these down, but you know, kind of an interesting development. So it's not that humans can't also do these creative, unorthodox things. I think the rationale behind some of these AI tools is that sometimes the AI is faster, you know, and and just able to do it more efficiently or more productively sometimes. But to me, it seems like a recipe for disaster if we slowly phase out <laughs> incentives for humans' own creativity, because in theory. The humans will continue to feed these machines new ideas and new information. And then the machines will, you know, feed us back new ideas and new information. At least that's the way I see it. But I will say that one thing that worries me, and this is one that I think about a lot, and there's actually a book called Reengineering Humanity that talks about this in much greater depth. You know, AI relies on statistical models. At least today they, they mostly do. And so I always worry in a world driven by AI, where they rely on all these statistical models, is there still going to be room for outliers, not tomorrow and not next week, but like in five years? Or will AI eventually drive us all to some universally agreed upon right answer for things like what good music is, or what the good life looks like, or what a good poem is, or what a good legal argument is? You know, I, I do worry about that. And I don't know if there is a good understanding of what the answer really is on a technical level, let alone like a, you know, a philosophical level. But that is something that I get concerned about. You know, there was a time in high school when I would, you know, be able to find all these cool underground bands and find music that was just kind of out there and very different. And I feel like that kind of stuff is impossible to find. There are these playlists that are created for you and the bands get popular because there's some sort of algorithmic driver behind them and there's a math following of them. Like what happens to the outliers? I, I don't know. So I'm with you guys that little bit. I, I worry about this, but I do think that that worry could, I think, be alleviated if we're careful about how we ultimately end up using these tools in our lives.
1: Absolutely. And I, I would certainly hope that the human drive toward creativity would Eventually, I hope you know, recognize this narrowing and rebel against it. Yes, you know, it's part of the human experience. Whether you're talking about, you know, if you want to talk about music, there have been how many different evolutions of music that are essentially rebelling against the previous iterations, and certainly people thinking that it's becoming too corporate or too predictable. So, yeah, I would hope that the human rebellion would would win out in the
0: end. <laughs> well this has been amazing and I feel like we could talk to you forever and trying very hard not to go down a whole bunch of different tangents and rabbit holes bringing in books and other philosophers but we do have to somewhere end this podcast. So I will ask you the last question which we like to ask all of our guests and that is other than what we have been discussing today. What else is keeping you up at night thesis?
2: I will be maybe a little boring and stick with this topic because it really is the thing that's kind of keeping me up. I think for me, the thread of this general topic of generative AI and AI more broadly that just constantly has my wheels turning is what does effective leadership look like as we start to face all of these challenges? I think it's really hard to be an organizational leader today. You know you have these human beings that are in your organization, and you have to wonder, you know how this technical evolution impacts them. You have a business to run, presumably, or if you're in the government, you have a state to run.
0: <laughs> you know a
2: lot of a lot of things to do. So how do you keep the wheels turning and 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 keep things moving forward? And then how do you do this all in a way that doesn't, you know completely turn our world upside down? maybe not tomorrow but in 20 or 40 or 60 or 100 years and i sometimes try to think about how it is that we can all help each other to really internalize our own personal responsibility in this and really just help organizational leaders to do what we think is is the right way forward and none of us knows the right way forward but but i do think it's really hard and i do think we all need to help and work together and contemplate some of these kind of Thorny issues. So yeah, ending it up on a very deep note, I suppose.
1: (laughs) I I think it, you know, it does come down to that, Alejandra. I think it is, it is very deep, you know, huge technological advances that move faster than our ability to truly contemplate them or regulate them. That's pretty
0: deep. (laughs) I was just going to say, Just because I have to, because I feel like it came up so naturally with this idea of discussion of creativity and how music is getting a little bit more standardized and also economics. And there's this book called Trust. It's great. It's about, well, it brings in together towards the end. So I won't discuss it, but the idea of creativity from music in the outlier space and how that has been used so successfully in ways that no one could imagine that are so different from the standard. Anyway, it's a great book, but it reminded me of how all these sort of themes tied together.
2: I am totally adding that to my reading list. That sounds great. Thanks for the recommendation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Particularly because my husband and I were in the car with one of our kids the other day, and she asked for us to put on a particular song that that we were pretty sure was generated by a generative AI. before. Mm. <laughs> But in any event, I would hope and in a lot of circumstances where we face these pretty critical pivot points in technology, a lot of times people have turned to art, all sorts of art to be able to allow the truly human experience to come through. I think it's, you know, something that could keep you up at night when it seems like, you know, when AI is also contributing to art. It's a really interesting space <laughs> to be in. But with that, thank you so much to our special guest, Alejandra Parra-Orlandoni. And thank you to the DC Bar. To check out more of what DC Bar communities have to offer, please visit dcbar.org backslash communities. And you have been listening to the Tea on International Arbitration. Watch out for new episodes. And if you like this episode, please tell a friend about it and subscribe anywhere you access your podcasts.